especially in Formula One's case, translated and, and told uh, to the consumer, I think that's tremendously impactful, right? You have people that are now uh, thinking about Formula E or Formula One within the context of, you know, what is it like to be in the team? Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Tom Richardson. My normal co-host, Joe Favrito, is actually on a business trip today, so I will be doing this one solo. I just want to say, um, for those of you who are regular listeners, Joe and I actually saw each other for the first time in almost two and a half years yesterday as the new semester at Columbia began this week. He had his class yesterday. I had mine on Wednesday, and we had a faculty meeting yesterday as well as a new semester reception, which was terrific. Got to see lots of old friends and um, students and had a blast. So it's good to be back on campus. It's good to be in the now fall season of sports. This We're recording this on the cusp of one of the biggest sports weekends of the calendar, which is the opening of NFL season. Actually, technically started last night, but we've got the semifinals and finals of the US Open. We've got interesting stuff happening in baseball, interesting stuff happening all over the place although I will note that certain things are now suspended in the UK because of the news about the passing of the Queen. So uh, interestingly, I know Premier League is going to be suspended as well as some of the golf event. There's a big golf event this weekend. Anyway, that said, speaking of alumni and getting together with old students and uh, now industry colleagues, I'm thrilled today to have someone that is a graduate of this Columbia program, someone who was in my class someone who I got to know through his interest in and work in the world of motorsports primarily, and someone who's had a really fascinating career. So we are talking about none other than Ian Tupper, who graduated, I guess, about five or six years ago from the program. Yeah. Ian, what, what, what Maybe six, yeah, six, okay. seven years ago, yeah. I guess, 2015, yeah. yeah. Wow, it was 2015? Yeah. Oh my gosh, okay, wow. All right, so, um, Anyway, Ian has a really interesting resume. He's going to tell us about his back story in a few minutes, but let me just go over some of the highlights. He's now working, and Ian, by the way, when I was reading your LinkedIn profile, this may be one mm -hmm. of the longest descriptors I've ever seen from yeah. an executive in business. Okay, let me see if I can get this right. Currently, strategic environmental partnerships and new climate tech business initiatives for Hyundai and Genesis in North America. Wow. Okay, so you can explain what that really means in a minute, uh, but that's fascinating. Before that, he worked um, at Dragon Penske Motorsport, and before that, Faraday Future, and one of the big names in all of motorsports history, Ferrari, before that, as well as some other interesting positions before he got into motorsports. So what's interesting is that Ian started off as a liberal arts guy back at Davidson College, started his business career, did a couple of different things, ended up getting into the world of motorsports and came to the Columbia program, I guess, partway through that experience uh, of that aspect of his career. And now he seems to be doing quite well in the business. So Ian, we're thrilled to have you. And I'm looking forward to talking about a couple of key things, including not just about your career path, but the actual state of motorsports, which is a topic that Joe and I have not covered very much in this podcast, unfortunately, but it's it's definitely worthy of more discussion and reflection. So really thrilled to be getting into that. And also the subject of sustainability, which I know applies as an issue uh, and an aspect of your current position with Hyundai. So let's start off with the Ian Tupper backstory. Yeah. 
uh, a relatively brief version, if you don't mind, because I want to get into the substance of the conversation about what, what you're working on. How did a liberal arts guy from Davidson end up in this world? Yeah, thanks, Tom, and I appreciate you inviting me on. It's great to reconnect, and um, I know we've only been in touch virtually through the pandemic, so hopefully I can get back get back to the city soon. Um, but yeah, so it's it was an interesting journey, and I think Davidson, of all the liberal arts schools, has a a distinct geographic advantage in that it's um, located in the heart of one of the two motorsport centers of the U.S., uh, namely uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Indianapolis, and the area around there being the other one. Um, and so while at Davidson, I wasn't, I didn't really have, I would say, a, a strong direction in terms of where I thought you know, I, I thought oh, I wasn't focused on getting to motorsports, right? You know, I did a lot of work in the sustainability space in college, in particular, looking at challenges around urban planning and transportation and things like that. Um, but was fortunate enough to uh, be connected through some leadership development programs at this at the college um, with some folks in the North Carolina area, and they eventually introduced me. Uh, to uh, the executive leadership at Stuart Haas Racing, in particular, a gentleman named Brett Frude, who was who's the president um, there. And through Brett, I came to learn uh, a lot about just the way that he was looking at the business. And, and, you know, you learn a few sports business fundamentals, which, you know, at that time were make sure you read the SBJ every day, right? You know, which... <laughs> It's, it's evolved into Sportico now for me, yeah, but, it, yeah. you know, it's it yeah. critical learning back then, right? right. Um, and so I was able to take that forward and kind of that approach forward when I um, was really lucky, you know, incredibly lucky to land this opportunity in Singapore, um, working at Formula One and interning um, with the Formula One race promoter uh, there in Singapore. And... Um, I count myself lucky because at the time, you know, I was, I was applying for a lot of the typical liberal arts jobs, you know, looking at consulting and things like that. But um, a very good friend of mine said, you know, Ian, you, you waste a lot of time learning about cars and, and following motorsport and all that. So maybe you should, you know, look at that and see if there's a career to be made in that. And so uh, it turns out uh, he was right. And uh, while I try to waste less time on that now. Uh, I think that there's certainly a lesson to be had there and looking at the things where you're spending your time, even if you're not conscious of how much time you're spending on that and trying to parlay that into some sort of uh, uh, added value that you can bring to any organization. But anyways, so got to go to Singapore, had this amazing intern experience with um, the organizers of the GP. So this isn't Formula One themselves, but this is the race promoter who purchases the rights to host a Formula One event and, and to do so in Singapore. And so got to see behind the scenes, all of that, a lot of operational stuff, even though my role was focused on a combination of PR and kind of corporate sales and servicing um, responsibilities, um, but really got to understand kind of uh, what it meant to produce an event of that scale and the impact that live sport can have on that scale, especially in a market where, um, you know, it, it's a fairly new sport and honestly, Singapore, you know, it's a, it's a smaller city, right? You know, I think there are what, 6 million people living on the island now. Um, you, you can have that kind of impact. And so that was really addictive. Um, and I, I got a huge taste for that and, and was kind of struck by another uh, 
bit of luck upon coming back to the United States where again, through a series of connections and just, you know, telling people about stuff and the stuff I was interested in, I eventually got passed and introduced to the marketing director at Ferrari North America. And again, serendipitously, uh, a position had just opened for, you know, a junior marketing coordinator role. And I was able to, inter- you know, interview for that and through a lot of constant following up. And again, I, I attribute a lot of it to just the inherent amount of nerdy automotive and motorsport knowledge that I had accumulated by that point in time. I was able to sway them to give me the job and then uh, stayed there for a while. And Ferrari is this amazing organization where obviously you have this immensely powerful brand, um, but behind that brand, you have a really small team, a really small global team, even if you think about it from the office there in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, uh, Shanghai, uh, and Marinello in Italy, of, of people that all work very closely together to, to build this brand. And, and the only reason way you keep a brand at that level is there is you have to hold everybody within the organization with the absolute highest standards. And so I was really fortunate to be able to learn within that context and learn from them. Um, because it was one of these places where I got to see the two sides of the motorsport business, right? Because motorsport's very unique in that you have really strong corporate interests from the OEMs, the, the automotive manufacturers. And you'll hear me use that jargon uh, frequently. Um, but then also the racing teams. And Ferrari is one of the unique, probably one of the most unique companies where the two organizations are extremely closely linked. Um, and so we did some racing in, in the Americas and but my initial work there was really just on the road car side. You know, I would try to help organize hospitality and leverage my expertise there um, wherever I could, but it was really up until I got the opportunity to go to Columbia. Um, and so when I went to Columbia or it's it really interesting to even back up because it was that same kind of North Carolina network that introduced me to Columbia and um you know, referred me to the program and that helped unlock uh, the skill set. Uh, really, in particular, the sports management program helped unlock the skill set I needed to uh, take the automotive business, which was our core business at Ferrari in North America, and uh, better integrate that with the motorsports arm of the company, which was, which was very much developing and now is operating in full tilt, supporting, you know, GT racing as well as customer racing, um, in the challenge. Uh, and no, I mean, it was, it was, it was really a profound opportunity and I learned a lot from that. Um, at the same time, a former executive at Ferrari, a gentleman by the name of Marco Mattiacci had just finished his tenure as the team principal of the Ferrari Formula One team and uh, was working out in California at a electric vehicle startup uh, called Faraday Future. Um, I had always had this, uh, you know, sustainability was always front of mind for me, uh, which, you know, is obviously hard to, hard to wrestle, uh, you know, working at Ferrari, um, even though you know, if you take the product aside, the actual operations of, of, of Ferrari itself, Ferrari has one of the lowest, you know, carbon footprints of all the automotive manufacturers. They have amazing uh, lead certified facilities and stuff like that in Marinello um, and put a lot of effort into that. Um, but from a messaging and brand standpoint, obviously it's not the greenest. But Ian, uh, let me just quickly interject. Did, did you have a, did you have a, 
an interest in sustainability that that started when you were studying urban policy and things like that you mentioned oh for college. sure yeah, yeah. exactly because it, it's not was exactly something. something you hear a lot of young people say i'm not really interested in pursuing sustainability career options or something like that but it sounds like that was on your mind through these years yeah exactly it, it was okay. it was always on my mind and something that you know when I was, you know, I, I used to, I interned for, I volunteered to intern for the city of Detroit and we were working on trying to figure out how to legalize urban farming at the time, right? And how to operationalize that and bring it into the forefront. So it was something that was always on my mind, but uh, I kind of put it on the back burner until this opportunity at Faraday was presented to me where I could kind of do both, right? Again, take this role where I'm still have one foot in the, um, uh, in the automotive business and kind of developing this new automotive, uh, this new electric vehicle um, and bringing that product to market. And then on the flip side, how leveraging the partnership they had just struck up um, in Formula E and leveraging that new emerging motorsport platform to try to uh, not only develop new marketing opportunities, but see what else we could glean from an R&D perspective, from a technology development perspective, and even a, a new business development perspective out of the work that was going to support the racing initiative. So um, as with many startups, you know, there, there it was a lot of um, any automotive listeners here that are familiar with Faraday will know kind of the story and, and where it's headed. Fortunately, there, there's, there's still an operation, um, but it, it wasn't the uh, it, it was there were some challenges there and ultimately the racing program had to be put on the shelf. Um, and so I was but at that time, I was still very committed, very interested in the racing pro, in the racing program and then in Formula E itself, because Formula E, while just a startup, you know, they started right there. They had their first race in 2014. Um, so by that point, it was season three. Uh, they, they were making all the right moves. You had incredible support from the FIA, which is the governing body. You have to think in terms of global motorsport, you have, uh, you have, a, again, you have this promoter and um, kind of federation relationship where you have the FIA, who is the regulating body. So think of them as FIFA. Um, uh, and they are the referees at the end of the day. They set the regulations, they set the rules, and they enforce them at all of the events. Uh, and juxtaposed against that, you have the promoter, which is responsible for all of the commercial uh, terms of the sports product and actually promoting and producing the, the, the different races. Um, and so Formula E was in this amazing spot where they had, you know, a really strong promoter, um, plus the support of the FIA. And frankly, it was kind of right place, right time. They had lightning in a bottle uh, to, you know, to use an electric car pun, I guess. Um, with where the industry was and where uh, all the OEMs were kind of shifting in terms of sustainability. And so um, I was really fortunate to be given the opportunity and and to be invited to uh, join uh, Jay Penske's team, uh, which is Dragon Penske Autosport, um, and to help them from the commercial side, right? And at that point, I was really given carte blanche to, you know, main focus, obviously, sponsorship development, right? You know, you're bringing in revenues, but then how can you, uh, how could I do that in a way that would support the technical and the R&D side of things? And how does this tie into uh, Jay's other business at the time, which was, uh, well, which is still is, excuse me, Penske Media Corporation, you know, that 
that media conglomerate. Oh, so that's, that, um, that's, why you, like, that's why you gave Sportico a shout out. Now I, now I yeah, see. exactly. Okay. Yeah. We didn't have Sportico when right. I first started. Right? I know. I know. Um, you know, we had Variety, and, and shortly thereafter, they acquired Rolling Stone and a bunch of amazing publications. You know, now they've got South by Southwest and all these other um, different platforms and channels. Right. Um, and so then it became a, broad, a bigger media discussion, yeah, right? You have, exactly. you have live media with the motorsport and then you have live media with some of the other things that are produced by these outstanding brands. Um, and how do you bring those together and how do you package that up? So it was really amazing to work alongside Jay and the team at PMC and to try to co-sell and develop all these different um, products together. And, and we had some success, you know, with Italian brands, footwear brand like Geox, um, and others that came in were able to leverage all the different channels and platforms that um, that, that group had put together. Um, and ultimately, uh, again, learned a ton, right? You know, it's, it's global motorsport and you're in the weeds with the engineers and um, in a small team like that, especially. Um, I learned so much, again, even just pure engineering. I'm not an engineer by trade. I majored in anthropology and, and <laughs> double majored in anthro and economics, right? And so, um, but I learned how electric motors work. I learned how inverters work and all these different things that even now are, are, are super important um, and was only able to do so because it was such a, you know, it's a racing environment, right? You live with these people, your, your day starts, especially in Formula E, your day starts at 4 a.m. and ends at 11 p.m. if you're lucky. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, phenomenal experience with that team and, and, you know, really grateful for the opportunity to have been there. Um, the only thing that pulled me away was just the, the kind of the uniqueness of this, as you said, Tom, long, long and kind of abstract title I've got uh, here at Hyundai. Right. And so now I'm back fully on the OEM side. Right. Hyundai Motorsport is, is handled by a separate division. But my remit here is to use the skills I have in term, I've developed over the years in terms of building strategic partnerships and working with third parties um, to A, tackle all of the challenges that are posed by the current shift towards electrification, mm -hmm. um, whether it be battery electric vehicles or even hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles, um, and to really try to transform those into opportunities that at the end of the day benefit the customer and can be developed into new business lines for Hyundai as a group. And so it's, it's a really unique challenge. And right now we're, you know, laser focused on infrastructure and tackling some of the challenges around there so that we can make sure our customers are, you know, not only excited to drive uh, the outstanding products that um, the company is producing, but it's easy for them to plug those products into their lifestyle. And by um, the way, you're you of... you talking about the, the full, the full consumer business of Hyundai, not, not exactly. anything associated with racing. So that's talk about a big remit, like what yeah. you just described, <laughs> you know, you kind of said it very nonchalantly, but that's a huge agenda, obviously, um, especially as it feels as though the country, and I'd love to hear it. We're going to talk about this in a second, kind of the, what's happening with sustainability and the EV market and things like that. But with all the attention that's been on Tesla over the last couple of years and now Rivian, mm -hmm. um, all the major players like Ford making moves in, in the area, when you saw this opportunity or when you were presented with this new opportunity to essentially kind of go in the more 
it's called the sustainability direction proper as yeah. opposed to kind of hybrid uh like in faraday for example um you were you were ready effectively to walk off the motorsports stage as it were i sus i suspect career-wise because it is a little bit different it sounds like kind of for sure general automotive marketing different than motorsports marketing yeah, no, for sure. And, and honestly, it's even it, it's kind of taken all of marketing even off the table because it's really kind of corporate strategy, though, of course, we, we can't do anything uh, without all the help from our marketing teams or, you know, our, our dealer partners and the broader, uh, you know, Hyundai apparatus. But, you know, it was it was a hard decision to leave uh, to leave motorsports full time to leave that team and, and the organization that uh, that Jay built. Um yeah, but at the same time, it was also kind of one of these things where, for me, it was a little bit of a lifestyle change that I, I needed as well. Um, my wife's much happier, thankfully. You know, it can go either way, but she's much happier to have me around. <laughs> Meaning you're, you're kind of implying that maybe you're putting in less hours? Is that a fair? No, no. <laughs> the, oh. hours are, the hours are exactly oh, okay. the same. It's just uh, it's just doing the hours from here in Los Angeles versus uh, a hotel room or you know, oh, you were just traveling. Uh, one of our offices. Yeah, okay. I didn't realize yeah. that. I didn't know you were doing yeah. that much travel. No, I, I was in motorsport, especially coming. You know, so much of global motorsports head, headquartered in the UK, right? Um, and, and and so, or in Europe in general. And so, right. uh, the travel schedule, especially coming from Southern California, is just it's it's really rigorous. Yeah, and, and Hyundai's so, Hyundai's headquartered in Southern California, correct? Correct. So Hyundai's headquarters for the Americas is for the Americas, um, right? For North America, let's say, is, is in yeah. Southern California. Here. Right, but look, that's an interesting yeah. side point for everybody listening who are thinking about careers and career development, career changes. Is that sometimes you have to find a balance that's going to work better for your uh, your life and home style, let's call it, as opposed to just to your your work ambitions, and uh, that's a real factor. And so, uh, you know, I I think it sounds like you thought that through quite thoroughly. Um, yeah. And it's no. so far you made a good decision. Yeah, yeah. No, so far, so good. Uh, yeah. She's not right, so at the moment, so she can't say otherwise, but yeah. <laughs> so so let's talk about two aspects of this before we well, actually why don't like I'll, I'll just kind of um reverse what the, I think the way we're gonna go directionally for the convo. Uh let's talk about sustainability and EV. I mean, I find this mm -hmm. market fascinating. I think what was a bit of a novelty market, I think, in the eyes of many consumers four or five years ago is now mainstream. We're seeing, obviously, more advertising, sponsorships, certainly more discussion culturally about it. Um, it certainly doesn't hurt that one of the cultural lightning rod personalities in American culture, and uh, Elon Musk, uh, kind of led the charge on the commercialization of EVs uh, in this world. Um, but, but let's kind of hear your take of, you know, sometimes you hear like, oh, the, the blockchain market is in the bottom of the you know, top of the first inning or whatever. Where are we kind of, if we look back on this era 20 years from now, what will this period look like, uh, you know, historically, like, are we still really early or do you feel like 23 is going to be a big year or is it going to take longer? Like, what's your assessment there? Yeah. I mean, that's a really... Uh, that's a great question, Tom. And, you know, I would say as much as the lifestyle change was uh, a big part of why I made the shift, it was also kind of um, timing in terms of where the industry is at and where a particular Hyundai 
as a group is, is and, and, and was um, at the time. I think Hyundai is obviously, from a technology standpoint, you get Hyundai is the product, and without getting too much into the weeds, um, from, uh, from its product and technology standpoint, the hardware that you get on a on any on a new Hyundai EV like the Ionic 5 or the Genesis GV60 is really um, it, it's closer to what we had in Formula E than almost than the offering for almost every other OEM um, in terms of just the architecture of the vehicles and how they work and how they enable them to charge. And what I think you're seeing now in terms of the broader industry is other OEMs catch up and you know Hyundai really ramps up production. Um, is even with things like, you know, the microchip shortage that we are all, that's impacting every industry in some way, shape or form. Um, you're, you're seeing what was apparent to those of us that were working, um, at startups and kind of in this space, even as early as, you know, 2016, right. Which is that there is demand for, um, for the vehicles, because at the end of the day, people, um, it, it is a superior driving experience in some way. I mean, I've, we, we have a, currently have a hydrogen fuel cell EV right now, and we have a, another battery electric vehicle on order. Um, and, you know, we won't go back, right? My, my wife, you know, gets into another vehicle and it feels so old fashioned, you know, the, the vibration, the smells and all these things that, you know, even from a motorsport standpoint, yeah, there's a certain appeal, right? Um, you know, when you, when you fire up, a you know, a, an old race car or something like that, but for the day in day out commute and even, you know, I would argue also at the other end of the spectrum, the performance driving side of things, um, the, the EV platform is really superior and, and really offers, um, a lot of unique and exciting things that I think are really resonating with the market now. And then you lay on top of that, the way that uh, the conversation and, and the awareness around the climate crisis has really finally come to the forefront. Right. Um, even, you know, much more so in Europe and the rest of the world, you know, the U S we're, we're still lagging behind a little bit. Um, it's kind of a confluence of the factors and people are motivated right now. People are thinking about sustainability in a range of purchase decisions and especially at the younger generation. And so if I, you look, you look at what's coming upstream from, you know, the younger generation, it's going to become an even higher um, purchase consideration. At some point, mm-hmm. it'll just become table stakes, right? You know, they, they'll want to know your credentials and they'll want to know that the product that they're consuming um, isn't going to, you know, impact the environment in, a, a neg- in any negative way. And so obviously, Hyundai, we're working towards um, carbon neutrality um, and, a lot of these things were, I, I think, are all converging right now, together with the fact that again the, the product is just so strong, um, and we're finally starting to offer it at prices that are accept- that are accessible to a lot of people. That I feel right, which, that, has been, which has been an inhibitor for sure. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. in this market, I mean that's that's one of the things I hear just conversationally all the time. It's like, hey, I would love to get one, but they really are quite pricey. Uh, maybe I'll wait for the prices to come down, which mm-hmm. I, I suppose technically, or maybe you can answer this. I assume they've come down statistically a little bit, but maybe not as much as- For sure. I mean, it's, you know, we're still seeing high costs in the raw materials and things like that, especially given the prevailing macroeconomic climate. 
But what, by the way, for, for for us novices about EVs, like what what are the factors that make it super expensive? The the, the batteries and the technology primarily. I, it's predominantly the battery at the yeah, end of the okay. day. You know, the the battery, the electric motors, um, the inverters, and some of the specialized materials used in there make it expensive. But it's really the battery that that you know cutting edge device that's able to, to carry. You know, in our instance, you know, in our instance, you know, seventy seven kilowatt of batter of power um you know it's enough to run a neighborhood right wow. okay. <laughs> it, it's if, if you look at what your home uses in a given day it's it's you know you can run your home for days um and so it's yeah that that technology is the primary cost driver right so you want to keep an eye on 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 the on where are there efficiencies being built into the battery supply chain and where are there opportunities for that in order to pull costs down um, and drive costs down there. But the other side is the willingness of the OEMs to uh, produce product and to try to develop product with a consumer in mind that, you know, you're trying to build product for somebody rather than just, you know, produce the product out there. And that's one of the other things that, again, was really exciting about 10 days. We have the ability because of, you know, offering great product at a, at a value, at a value, uh, at a you know value oriented price as part of our you know core corporate mission and value, um, we're able to democratize the technology. And so what I think you're seeing right now is really the start of this technology being democratized and and having you know uh, legislation like like that which was passed uh, gosh, a couple of weeks back is really helpful in this regard. And not only from the EV side. But if you look at all the other things that are in there around solar and, and additional incentives like that, because you know, one of the things we're looking at, and actually my group's looking at, is, is how can we take this technology and make it easier to fit into your life? So not only offer an EV, but one of the biggest benefits of driving an EV is, you know, you can most, if you own a home or um, if your condominium building has uh, parking, um, you can charge the vehicle overnight. And so you have a full tank every day when you start the day. Um, do you, do you and, need to do you need to do uh, a special connection for that? Um, it really depends on the home. Outlet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you have a if you got a dryer in your garage, you're good to go. Um, but it really depends on the home um, and kind of how much power or how the existing how your wiring is set up, basically. Um, but what we're trying to offer is like, yes, great, you can do that. Um, but while while you're at it, if you're gonna if you do need to upgrade your wiring or you do need to, to put in a 240 volt uh, outlet in your garage, why not also do home solar? Why not also get home energy storage device to act, up, right. act as backup power? Or if you have, you know, time of use electricity rates, uh, like we do, uh, here in California, you can charge your EV when electricity is cheapest. And that starts to open up a whole range of possibilities looking into the future where, right. you know, once everybody's got, uh, you know, 70, 80 kilowatt hour battery, at their home, um, can there be load sharing? Can you? How can how can the grid evolve, um, and how can that impact and reduce everybody's carbon footprint moving forward? And I think that's one of the really exciting uh, parts about the area in which I'm working right now. And right, I think so, yeah. we're really starting to see. <laughs> I think that's kind of that opportunity as well that's, that's pulling us along. Yeah, no, I just feel like it's a moment in time. I, I know we only got about 15 minutes left, and I want to talk about motorsports uh, for yeah. part of that. But one more question on this, if you can answer briefly. Um, 
It seems that maybe marketing branding have been a challenge so far in this EV market. Mm -hmm. And one thing I read recently, and tell me if this is accurate or if you agree or disagree, that even the familiarity of the brand, the brand name. So we know the OEMs, we, mm -hmm. we know the Fords and, and we know the, the Minis and things like that and Hyundais. Um, but it's, it, I think what I read, I'm, I'm trying to recall the specifics of the article, was that by actually incorporating the existing models that people are familiar with, just in terms of brand identification, such as the Ford F-150, which I think is the mm -hmm. best selling, one of the best-selling trucks in the country. That, oh, there's a, there's an EV yeah. version of the Ford F-150. Oh, now I, now I get it. As opposed to if they said, we have a new truck called the Ford EV-27, and people would be like, what's the EV-27? Is that is is that an element of the strategic analysis you're doing just on the actual branding of the of the name naming conventions? You know, I, I think it differs a little bit per OEM, right? You know, we are as Hyundai, we are electrifying existing products like G80 on the Genesis side or Kona on the Hyundai side. Um, so all people, we're also we've also launched a. A specific line of vehicles called Ionic, right? Ionic Five. Right. Uh, we showed Ionic Six earlier this year, and so I think it it kind of depends on different OEMs are taking different approaches to this. Mercedes has the EQ uh, sub brand that they've rolled out, um, and I, I think you're seeing at the end of the day. I think right now it, it's one of these things where it's a little bit customer fit. Right. You know, like you mentioned, Ford F-150, there, there's an immense amount of equity in what is you know, basically one of the best selling vehicles, you know, on the continent. Um, where, whereas we and we have a lot of equity, obviously, in Kona. Right. And so for certain products, it's certain product consumer fit. Right. Um, and I think that's probably what's driving a lot of uh, the way that the EVs are being introduced. Um, I mean, even if you look at Mustang, right? You know, Ford spent a lot of time right. uh, mulling about how to, you know, name their crossover, and they went with Mustang, an existing nameplate um, that they have there. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's right now. I guess to, to each OEM at their own, as we all, you know, try to navigate this. But I think the the biggest lesson that's come through, at least for me personally, is the quality of the product is the most important, yeah. and what Hyundai has engineered into their new EVs. Um, it's it's yeah it's it's doing a lot of the lifting um and the and the marketing is uh it, it's helping but you know the product strength is is really um profound well good for you good for you it's it's really fascinating i i don't know anyone else working in this in that world so uh i'm really anxious to see where this goes for you personally uh career-wise but also um as a, I'm actually researching this right now. One reason why I'm asking so many questions, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm ready as many people I know uh, are. And I think this is a moment in time right now. So it, it sounds like really good timing for you in terms of this career change uh, or shift. Um, so with the remaining time, let's talk a little bit about motorsports. You really got some mm -hmm. interesting per perspectives from the yeah. different experiences you had. And what we've been witnessing in America, at least over the last, year or two has been this incredible uh growing interest in particularly international global sports like f1 being the best example the drive to survive series which was a runaway hit the right steel that f1 did um the, the pop the, the ratings popularity of the brands etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. 
it's also kind of a moment in time for motorsports. Let me ask the question about like the state of motorsports, your opinion yeah. on the state of motorsports in this context. As we've witnessed stuff we even talked about in the program and in the class, you know, the rise of um, uh, or the, the improvements in technology, the, the inexorable advance of technology, more data being produced, kind of this fascination with the tech and analytics side of everything in our business mm -hmm. right now, ranging from old fashioned sports to racing. Racing kind of has an inherent advantage in that, mm -hmm. in that they're always doing aggressive things in the tech market. They're always, there's tons of data being produced by, uh, by these um, uh, race cars and their teams and things like that. Is that part of it? I mean, I want your broader answer, but do you think that's a little bit, that's part of this? It's kind of, it's, it's kind of a right, it's a good time for this to be getting popular as everybody seems to have this fascination in tech and analytics. That wasn't around, wasn't necessarily part of the business, so to speak, let's say six, seven years ago. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting view on it, Tom. And, and in my mind, I would say, yes, it's, it's less, you know, I don't know if, I don't think the average fan is super passionate about, uh, you know, tire degradation rate and what that means in terms of, in terms of the strategy right. call you're going to make. But if you look at a combination of the, the things like drive to survive and what the technology has enabled, you know, the graphics that are put up on a screen, whether formula E or formula one um, or any sport really, and how that allows the narrative of what's happening on screen to be, especially in Formula One's case, translated and, and told uh, to the consumer, I think that's tremendously impactful, right? You have people that are now uh, thinking about Formula E or Formula One within the context of, you know, what is it like to be in the team? And, and when you saw the broadcast kind of pre-drive to survive in early days, you would see the shots of the folks on the pit wall, but you wouldn't hear what they're saying. Right. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't understand the complex dynamics of these families. Right. Because, again, describing even my own experience, like if you're on a racing team, you live with these people at least half the year. Right. And, and everything you do with them and you're solving really complicated problems using the very latest technology um, to do that. And I think people as they see technology comes in, come into their own lives. And I think as they own uh, culturally is the way we engage with different technology shifts and evolve. I think they start to identify with right. that more. Um, and, you know, plus the flip side of it is whether you're a Formula E race racing around the center of Paris in a beautiful day in, in April or in Monaco and Formula One or Monaco and Formula E now as well, there's still that, that magic kind of uh, glamorous part right. of, of racing right. that I think has come through, especially for younger generations that have a really, you know, global aspiration and the global mindset that have come up over the last few years. And I think that the kind of globalized mindset is something that, um, I mean, if you look at the rise of, uh, you know, it, it just the, the way Euro European soccer has come over, right. And, and how that has grown um, in the Americas in particular. Um, I think there's something to be said for that as well. Yeah. What, what do you feel about the, the, the media moves made? Cause ultimately sports that are trying to grow need exposure they they need mm -hmm. viewers they need people to pay attention in, in our attention economy and one of the interesting trends the last few years is that with the um growth of streaming services many of which are now uh subscription based um some of these properties including some of the european soccer leagues have chosen to 
come to North America, or at least to the United States, and put their best content behind the paywall of a subscription product like ESPN Plus. So it's their prerogative, but by definition, they are reaching a smaller audience. I mean, ESPN <laughs> Plus is estimated to be somewhere, I think, in the mid-20s at this point. That's a lot smaller than the U.S. addressable yeah. market of television households, as you know. So is you, are you are you good with the media deals that are helping propel this growth? Like, are you thinking that's a factor? I, well, in the motorsports side, it, certainly. I mean, the combination of, you know, the way that, broadcasters are investing in telling in the, in the narrative and are even taking nods from what happened with drive to survive and um, are trying to really get behind the scenes. They, they realize that the value in motorsports is, is, you know, the action of the cars on track is, is very limited, but the drama of the personalities and everybody involved um, behind the scenes is what really gets people in because that's what's, you know, that's part of what's really identifiable. Again, you know, people, fans need to see themselves uh, in a product. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a little different for each sport because, you know, formula one and motorsport in general, the show's not the same place every weekend or every other weekend. Right. So whether it's live or uh, broadcast, there's, there is that shifting schedule element, right. which is, which is a major challenge, um, for, for, for a lot of motorsports properties. Um, and I think the. Conversely, if you have that, you need a media partner that's going to invest and, and really be willing to a story um, and, to, and to be effective in translating it. I think even from the Formula E side, one of the things we saw is, you know, we had a lot of outstanding media partners and we really performed well where you had a media partner that could contextualize what was happening on track right. and do so in a way that was effective for that local market. Ian, have the, has the sponsorship market responded as favorably as the consumer market in terms of viewing and engagement, you know, digital engagement, things like that, beyond the endemics? There's always been endemics in the world oh, of yeah. uh, I mean, auto racing, motorsports, but, but have the general, let's call them the general sponsorship crowd, have they, they've stepped up? Well, I still, th yeah, I mean, if you look at the deals, especially in Formula One and even also in Formula E, I mean, Formula E has a slightly different positioning relative to sponsors because you are at the very cutting edge of automotive technology. And you'll see a lot more companies that are focused on renewable energy that are focused on direct technology development, uh, these sorts of things in formula E versus formula one. You, you all, you get a little bit of the audience scale, uh, and of companies focused on that, um, but the are being cut with the likes of McLaren and Red Bull, uh, the series overall, um, they've responded. Yeah. I mean, they, they, it's, it's been massive for them and, and they've yeah. had, you know, probably the best, you know, um, the best last five years, um, since, uh, you know, tobacco was outlawed. Yeah. So, so it's safe to, in conclusion, it's safe to assume that you're bullish on the future of motorsports and its different forms in the U S sports market. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is going to be, you know, as the, it's it's going to be kind of the confluence of the two factors, right? Because you can't pull, as I started off saying, you know, motorsport is really unique in that you always have the influence of the OEMs, right? I think motorsports in the U.S. benefits from the fact that we have really strong privateer traditions like, you know, the Penske family and everything that they're doing, you know, not only with Jay and, and, and Formula E, but, you know, broader Penske, 
Corp and IndyCar to build that championship up and, and to make those events more special than even, you know, within that universe, you know, uh, and, you know, Andretti's just invested a fortune in uh, building a brand new facility in Indianapolis. Um, so I, I am bullish on it, especially at, at the high level. Um, I think the biggest thing that the motorsports industry is going to have to wrestle with, and it is wrestling with right now, is, is how does it transition, right? How does it become not only sustainable from a zero carbon standpoint, but how do you make sure that the product and the vehicles race and the technology used is relevant to OEMs and to consumers? Because as much as people are identifying with the heroes and the stories, there's still always got to be that race on Sunday, still on Monday. Um, framework attached to motorsport and so i think obviously formula e extreme e um those series are really at the front forefront and have you know developed around that model and it'll be interesting and, and i think one of the things to watch is how do the other uh motorsports championships carve out their own sustainability message their own authentic sustainability mission mission because let's not forget you know gen z is really smart wicked yes. smart right yeah. they're going to see through right. any greenwashing a more, i was gonna say more like discriminating that. audience for this kind yeah. of stuff and, and that exactly. poses new challenges to marketers that may have gotten lazy all right so we've got like two minutes left um we normally spend a little bit more time on these final two questions we'll do kind of more lightning round sure. so i think you know that we ask everybody uh two questions one is how do you stay smart and the second is uh about career advice so mm -hmm. on this, how to say smart again, you can make each answer 30 or 40 seconds if you don't yeah. mind. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but would love to finish this way because I find it interesting personally. I think it's helpful for the audience. So how do you keep up? You have a lot of stuff you need to follow right now, obviously, for your job. What do you like to read and follow? Who do you follow? And yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great question. And, and indeed, right now, it's in my current role, I try to. I try to manage uh, a little bit of depth and breadth, right? So when it comes to depth, I try to make sure that when I'm talking to engineers or experts in the field, I, I know I've done my homework, right? right. So I'm, I'm shopping around currently for, for a new battery and hydrogen uh, newsletter or something where I can get my bite-sized uh, digest. But previously, it was a lot of race car engineering, uh, that publication in particular, to understand a lot of the mechanics and so that I could speak to the engineers authentically. Um, but the flip side of that is always uh, deal flow. So whether it's, you know, the Barron's technology com com uh, column or um, a great newsletter that I've been reading is, is Climate Tech VC, mm -hmm. daily newsletter, just to see who's playing with who, where the VCs are, where, where, the, where the market's spending money, um that has been instrumental i'm kind of trying to stay one step ahead of everything and, and see um and, and see where the trends are and kind of understand the landscape in real time cool all right some quick some quick advice and then we'll wrap it up yeah um i from an advice standpoint i think the biggest thing just in my experience again you heard my career is a lot of bouncing around a lot of uh referrals and introductions the the biggest thing i can say is is just how important it is to to follow up um and do your homework uh when either meeting new people or if you've been introduced to somebody and i think it's it's not about trying to uh you know just stalk somebody prepare the answer to all the right questions at the end of the day but it's it's find those things that on which you genuinely connect and um you know be human, 
Um, so you kind of be human in, in your interactions, but also, you know, be respectful of people's time. I think one of the great things about the sports industry in, in general, and, and we see it a lot in the automotive industry as well, is people are super passionate about what we do, you know. And so they'll always be willing to share um, that passion and try to pay forward uh, to younger generations. And so as long as, you know, as long as people are, are respect that and, um, you know, your, your word's your biggest currency, um, you know, follow up when you say you're going to follow up and do and, and follow through when you say you're going to follow through, um, then be patient it'll, and things will work out. Yeah, no, that's really good, nice, simple, straightforward, but really important advice. I, I respect that. I think when you say you're going to do something, you do it and always be prepared. And it sounds like you, you know, I, I kind of smile listening to you answer about the keeping up, like reading the technology things. Again, I'm picturing a, a liberal arts guys, like, and, and I'm one myself, like reading, you know, uh, engineering publications just to make sure that you can feel comfortable in the conversations with tech folks. So yeah. good, good for you. And, and, I, and I'm not, lucky if I retain 85% of it. Well, I was going to say, but yeah. it, and it takes you out of your comfort zone, but it makes you, they, I'm sure it's not, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's noticed by your colleagues, put it that way. Uh, as a quote so. business guy, uh, because you know you got to get a little respect. Anyway, um, and then Ian, where can people um, get some more information about what you're working on? If there's something you can point to, uh, public. Yeah. Uh, well, I would just yeah. I mean, follow everything that we're doing. I mean, from a Hyundai standpoint, we're yeah. I guess you know we we've got an absolutely sublime PR department that's putting stuff out lately. Um, but we're in, in terms of new projects and things like that, I would just, you know, I, I tend to share things on my LinkedIn, but I would really direct people to kind of follow us um, uh, on the base Hyundai website and, and looking at not only Hyundai in the USA, but again, uh, Hyundai globally and wow. know, the Hyundai Motor Group website Perfect. as well. All right. Well, there you have the Godner's is a lot to read on this, t on the, the topic that we, uh, the main topic we cover about your new job, but thank you, Ian. That was terrific. Um, we've been listening to Ian Tupper, who is a uh, proud graduate of the Columbia program and uh, has had a really interesting and, and very inspiring career so far, obviously many years to go halfway through the, or whatever, not even halfway through the journey, but you, you got, you got a lot of exciting stuff ahead of you, particularly to like to say, it's nice. You're on, you're on the right trend line. Uh, career-wise, and that's something we should we should all think about vis-a-vis -vis careers. Because if you're not on the right trend line, it does make things a lot a lot harder. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you're in a great you're in a great spot. Issue. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's it, on an, on a number of levels, it's the right trend line. Uh, so that's uh, that's smart of you to, to to make sure you put yourself in a good position to succeed. So thank you, Ian. We really appreciate it. Um, let me know, let us know if you come back to New York at any point. We'd love to see you in person. We really uh, appreciate you spending time with us today. Oh, thank you, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity. It was always great. To and thank you to Danny behind the scenes for producing. Um, thanks uh, to everyone else who's helped us produce over these last uh, few years. So we're going to be changing out some of our producers over the next, uh, I think, a couple of months. But I really appreciate all the help in the, on, in the back of this. And um, mm -hmm. I will hope uh, everybody will uh, feel free to reach out if they've got any suggestions on new topics, yes, whatever. We're, we're happy to uh, listen to the audience. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.